The Alchemical Tech Revolution is sponsored by Spotify for podcasters. Hi, friends. This is Wayne McCroy, host of the Alchemical Tech Revolution podcast. Spotify for podcasters is now available for use by anyone out there who's interested in producing, monetizing, and distributing their podcast. You can have access to some of the best tools in the industry using Spotify for podcasters. Go to podcasters.spotify.com for more details. to the Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McRoy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're going to discuss the topic, the relationship between sin and death. We're going to explore the ideas of sin, original sin, how it introduced death into the world, what we mean by this, what the different thoughts of various philosophers and religious experts have said about this through the years, about some of the thoughts brought forward by theologians, theosophists, people from the secret schools, as well as those who have taught within the mainline religious structures. And we'll see how this relationship has come about, how the idea of sin or original sin being attached to death goes back to some of these ancient teachings and how we've got to this place and how there's this type of special indication as to the relationship between these two as it relates to humanity. Humanity having a special place in this world. So keep that in mind as we progress here. And we'll see. Tonight we're going to be reading from a book titled The Golden Dawn or Light on the Great Future, written by one Mr. Reverend J.H. Potts. And it's a compilation of works from various other people. Compilation of writings from various other people that he put together, displaying the nature of both sin and death, as well as various other subjects. But the portion of the book we'll be reading from tonight talks particularly about sin and death and how the introduction of original sin brought death into this world, at least to mankind, in mankind's understanding of things. So that that being the case, we're going to explore this avenue of thought. We're going to compare and contrast different things here. 
that are taught in different religious scriptures and different philosophies, as it were, relating to this. Because if you go back and look at some of the Greek philosophies, well, they don't necessarily teach that death and sin are related. If you look at some of our more modern philosophies, they would like you to forget about the notion of sin altogether, especially as it pertains to relation to death and death-based ideas, because we've demonstrated here before that those people running this world are a sort of death cult, as it were, they operate everything on these death-based ideas, and there's a reason for that. And there's also an association with this idea of sin directly attached to that. And that's where a lot of people really miss the boat and drop the ball on these things. They don't want to acknowledge this concept of sin and how it relates to death here in the world. They don't see them as being related some people, some people view the idea of sin as being silly and backward and a type of control system for those who've placed the organized religions of this world into places of prominence. And they're partially right about the church system or the religious orders being used as a system of control for people. They're absolutely correct about that. But don't lose the original context here of what was taught and things that were understood by ancient man in contrast to today. And this is another one of those things where it gets convoluted very quickly, especially within the auspices of the secret society groups and the mystery schools. They'll try to attach some old Greek ideas to it and say, see, there's no such thing as original sin. Sin has no place in this system. It's all just a matter of personal choices. And they'll fall back on this whole idea of what we would like to call secular humanism and the associated form of morality attached to that, moral relativism, you see. And this is wherein there's a clear distinction to be made. There is an absolute standard of right and wrong in this place, and some would call this natural law. And to not acknowledge that is a type of sin. To fall back on this idea of moral relativism as a standard for behavior is not a correct way to go. Because there are absolute laws that function in this natural world, in this place. That if you disobey these laws, it does lead to death. And this would be the equivalent of sin, not obeying natural laws choosing to diverge from natural law principles. That would be to fall into the idea of sin. And to do so leads you down the path of death. And the death cult that runs this world, these dark occultists at the top of the power structure, they very much want to lead people down this path of sin. And we'll get a little bit deeper into these kind of ideas, but... Uh, Let's go ahead and begin with the reading here tonight. Death to man is a penalty for sin. Death is the common lot of humanity. The translations of Enoch and Elijah are the only exceptions. It was introduced by sin of our first parents. By one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin. 
From that time it was appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. The skeptic assumes that death is a physical necessity because, number one, vegetation dies at maturity, number two, because some animals are carnivorous, made to live on flesh, and number three, because what man or beast eats must die. From this it is inferred that the scripture account of death is not true. In this, they ignore the fact that vegetables and the lower animals were designed for food, and that the death alluded to here is that of man, not for food, but as a penalty for sin. Man only could sin, he being the only moral and responsible being on earth. The law given him to keep allowed him to eat of every tree in the garden but one. Of that one it was said, In the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. So I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So we're falling back to the story of the Garden of Eden once again. And this is saying here that a lot of people would say that death is a necessity, a physical necessity. And think about this logically. This, this kind of holds true to a certain degree because vegetation dies at maturity, it says here. And because some animals are carnivorous, made to live on flesh... And because man or beast, whatever man or beast eats, must die. This is kind of true, in a sense, is it not? But this isn't talking about the same idea associated with death here. This is speaking of something more spiritual than physical. But we see the logical fallacy made there, just saying that death is necessary. And yes, within this natural system... Death is necessary, but there's nothing perverse about it outside of the introduction of sin or outside of the introduction of man being the only moral and responsible being here. The animals are innocent. The vegetation's innocent. The whole natural world is innocent in its functions. This is the notion we have to keep in mind, and it's only through the intervention of man that sin has come about. And so being, death has come about as well. So let's continue on with the reading, and I think the author here will explain it a little bit more concisely. Man came into existence with very different powers and faculties and for very different purposes than vegetation or the lower animals. Of these, it is said, quote, Let the water bring forth abundantly the living creature that have life. End quote. Let the earth bring forth grass and herbs and the living creature after his kind. End quote. And these being designed for man's use must of necessity die. But of man, it is said, The Lord God formed man, his body, out of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And to have dominion over the fish of the sea, the fowls of the air, and the cattle, and over all the earth. This implies a sovereign control and use, none of which is said of any other creature. Man was also made in the image and likeness of God, an intellectual, intelligent being, and as such a free moral agent responsible to God, his creator. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. Now, this is wherein the true distinction can be made here, where the relationship exists between sin and death, as we understand it. 
It is because man, being made in the image and likeness of God, is an intellectual, intelligent being, and a free moral agent. You see, God gave us the gift of free will. And because we have this free will, if we choose to disobey natural laws, the laws that govern this place, these absolute laws that if they are violated, they will reap consequences upon those that violate them, we're responsible to our Creator. Now, this is an idea that terrifies many within the auspices of the secret society groups and the mystery schools, the occult fraternities. They do not want to be held accountable or responsible to God, the Creator, and therefore they try to philosophize Him out of existence. But you know what? In the back of their minds, they're terrified of that notion. And that's why they do everything they can to try to instantiate themselves into positions of control and power in this world. And that's why, largely, those dark occultists who run things are seeking out the transhumanist notion of things, the transhumanist plan, to merge with machines and become immortal in this physical world and become the gods of this place, so that they could avoid, or at least delay as long as possible, their meeting with the Creator, wherein they will be held accountable for their actions. It terrifies them to think that at some point they may be answerable for the things they've done. Because, let's face it, they don't have the right relationship with the Creator. And that's what this is about. I mean, we were given a way to mend fences, so to say, with this whole thing. We were given a way to cross this barrier that is sin for reunification with our source, with our creator, with our God. But this is the important distinction. So not to get too far off the course here, because I do want to continue, because there's a lot of valuable information in this reading tonight in order to help us understand what is our place in this world? What is our place here? What is it we're intended to do? How does sin interfere with what we're here for? Why do we have these obstacles in our way? All of these questions we must ask ourselves. What's, what's the purpose, right? But let's continue reading. So we see here that man was also made in the image and likeness of God, an intellectual, intelligent being, and as such a free moral agent, responsible to God, his creator. He was sovereign over the other creatures upon the earth. They were his subjects. He was responsible to God. They were not. He was capable of sinning. They were not. Death to him was a penalty, not so to them. Their death was natural or necessary to the objects of their being. To him it was a penalty for sin. If death was a physical necessity to man, to make it a penalty was but a farce, for he must die whether he sinned or not. The mission of Christ to our world proves that death in the human body was a penalty for sin. He came to destroy the works of the devil, to undo, counteract those works, and restore man from the effects of sin. As in Adam all die, 
so in Christ shall all be made alive from the dead. The stress St. Paul lays upon this one fact, the resurrection of the dead, shows that if this one effect of sin remained not counteracted, the mission of Christ was a failure. Then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So you see, if people believe that the preaching is vain here, then they're kind of missing the point, aren't they? They don't understand what's been done here, what the whole purpose of the manifestation of Christ was here. It's about reunification with God. It's about counteracting this original sin idea. Adam, the original man, the first Adam, as they call him, and sometimes they call Christ the second Adam, made to correct the mistakes of the first Adam here, to make a way for us, so you see, death for mankind is a penalty for sin. Man was not originally designed to physically die. Now the animals and the vegetation and all the other things here must die of necessity. They were designed for that. That is their natural lot in this place. And perhaps this notion is one of the things that has been convoluted through the years, through the teachings of the secret schools and the secret societies, to lead to the idea of, first of all, spiritual evolution, second of all, physical evolution, and third of all, the idea of reincarnation. Perhaps, maybe, there's something to reincarnation. Maybe the animal souls do progress. Maybe the souls do progress through these various facets Maybe they do spiritually evolve to some degree and can return here until such time that maybe they manifest as a human being, the highest life form here. And then and only then can they be held accountable to God, the Creator, for their actions. When they have the free will and the intellect, the intellect, the free will, and the responsibility to God. Maybe there's something to that. I don't know. I don't claim to know. But we are told here, and this is logical, that this is part of the natural creation, death and rebirth. We know this. We've seen the natural law. But here's the thing. Man is something special, something different than the rest of the creation. And as such, we were originally designed to transcend this place, to be able to interact with it, but also not to perish as part of the system here, not to be one with the system. And this is where in some philosophies veer from some theologies, if you want to do the compare and contrast idea. Because a lot of what's taught, especially within the secret society groups, is everything is one. We're all one. The law of one. The rule of one. Have you ever heard all of this stuff? The idea that we're all just a manifestation of an infinitesimally small fractal of God. Which, maybe, if, from a certain point of view, there's a little bit of truth to that. But uh, when it comes down to brass tacks... 
that doesn't seem to align with theological principle. And there's always been these types of disagreements in mankind through the philosophical realm and such. But we can observe nature, and we can understand certain things about nature, and we can understand certain things about our Creator by observing nature. But see, here's the point. This is the big point, and this is where people get lost on this idea. We exist in this world. We are here. We are pilgrims here. We're spiritual beings having a physical experience. And that's wherein there's a difference. We're not a physical being having a spiritual experience. We're the opposite. Okay? Wherein the rest of creation is a physical being having a spiritual type experience. And perhaps it is a lesson ground for them so that they can advance maybe spiritually, as it were, or evolve, as the old mystery schools claim, and step up into that next higher level. But humanity is something different. We have accountability. We have intellect. We have free will. Animals operate out of instinct. The natural world operates out of this various hierarchy of forces or intelligences that guide things here. Some would call them elementals, perhaps. Some would call them various different things. And, of course, modern science will disagree with all of this old philosophy, certainly. We don't have a full understanding of how all this works or manifests, but what we do see is nature always operates in the same way year after year, season after season, and it does everything on time, right on time, as always, according to schedule. And it continues through these cycles, through these seasons. And we see the cycles of birth, death, and rebirth manifest through nature. And it can tell us some important things about this place, about the natural world, about ourselves, about our Creator, God. But we need to understand we were designed differently than the rest of this place, than the rest of the creatures here. We were designed in the image and likeness of God, and thus being so, we were intended to function differently here than what we do. But it was only through the introduction of sin, or disobedience to natural law, that we chose to take on these physical manifestations, as it were, of death and illness, and all of these things to experience in the fullness the physical realm here. But we were meant for much more. So let's continue reading here. I don't want to get too side-trailed, but I think you get the idea. So uh, we see here that the writer here, was pointing out some of these ideas that if you don't believe that there's this idea of sin and that sin was counteracted by the works of Christ, then we have a little bit of an issue because that would mean the preaching was in vain. And I don't personally think anything that was ever written down in the Bible or presented through the scriptures was in vain. There's certainly a huge amount of value to be found there. But there are people who don't agree or believe what the doctrines that are written there say. They see and view biblical scripture and theological accounts as being little more than fables or myths, fairy stories, some of them call it. And these people are hugely mistaken because even myths and fairy stories 
all these things that they claim that they would call this, even they have certain value and reveal certain truths about ourselves and the natural world. So to claim there's no value here is a misnomer on the face of it. And that's somebody who's purposefully ignoring a spiritual truth because they don't want to have to deal with the ramifications of that. And that's the bottom line here. At some point, we're all going to stand before our Creator and have to give account for our actions, our deeds here. And this is what makes mankind different from the rest of creation. We're accountable. The rest of it is not so much accountable. It just functions how it functions. And that's pretty much it. It functions in the natural order of things, how it has always done. And it never fails. Never fails. But we do fail. And that's where in the introduction of sin comes in. Right? But let's continue reading here because I did go on at length there for a little bit. If death had not been introduced, the race must have lived to the end of the world and multiplied just fast enough to fill it with people by that time. But the introduction of death would prevent this unless an increase of population were provided for. This was done after the atonement was promised in the seed of the woman, and Adam was to live and people the world as was originally designed, God said to her, I will greatly multiply thy conception. What other reason can be assigned for this increase of population? It seems clear to me that this world, when created, was designed to continue a given period, symbolized by the first division of time, seven days. And though Adam's sin deranged the moral world, it did not change the duration of the physical world. Each of the first seven days of time symbolizing a thousand years. One day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. If the word thousand here is merely a figure of God's eternity, the word billion or trillion would have been more appropriate. There must have been a design in using the word thousand by divine inspiration. A day in thy courts is better than a thousand in the tense of wickedness. So it is better than a trillion or an eternity. All symbols used by divine direction are based on some literal fact of truth. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So now the author here is suggesting that perhaps... The physical world as it exists is only intended for a short time, for a short period, symbolized by the number of days of creation, symbolized in this way. But let's read on, and I assure you the author here will tell you more or less exactly what he's talking about here. And we may have heard some of this theology before, and some of this philosophy before. Is it true? I don't know. I can't claim to know. But this brings questions to things like the age of the earth. And I think that's a topic for another day we're going to have to take a look at, too. The age of the earth. We don't really know how old the earth is, do we? We don't know how long humanity's really been here. Although our science would make certain claims, 
we really don't know how accurate those claims are. And we could point out reasons why we don't know. But that, like I said, that's a broadcast for another day. But here, the suggestion is being made that mankind is perhaps only a few thousand years old, that the Earth is only a few thousand years old. And this is some doctrine that's held by some Christian denominations. Some theologians. No way to really prove nor disprove it. Of course, the scientists will tell you they can disprove that by carbon dating the rocks or some such thing or looking at fossils and all of these different things that they can tell you that the world is millions or billions of years old but really they don't know because how they come up with those ages is arbitrary to begin with when you look at the history of how they determine the age of fossils and the age of the layers of the earth it's all arbitrary and like i said subject for another day don't want to diverge off the topic here too much but uh, let's continue reading so i don't diverge any more than what i already have the millennium or thousand years of rest to the church at or near the end of the world is accepted as a literal thousand symbolized by the day of rest after the creation the other six days being of the same length from evening to evening, and each symbolizing a thousand years, the duration of this world will be seven thousand years. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So what this guy is saying is due to the nature of original sin, that this physical world will only exist for seven thousand years total which would put us very near the end of the world today if this is correct and if uh, we could trust our recorded historical accounts as to how old we think mankind is, how long we've been recording historical dates. So we see that if he's correct, well, that means this physical world is coming close to a close and that things will be different. But I won't put words in his mouth. We'll let you him tell you himself what he thinks here. And like I said, I, I don't know if this is correct or not. I don't think any of us truly know, but it's a fascinating topic to explore, and it's something I think we need to keep in mind and maybe give a little attention to, maybe give a little credence to. So thinking in these terms can be kind of revelatory for people. Helps you understand you do have a very distinct place in this world. You're here for a reason. And that perhaps you are accountable for your actions and that you should live in good relation to your creator. It's about relationship. It's not about religion. It's about having the right relationship with God, with the creator. That's what is truly important in this life. But let's continue reading. I don't want to get all theosophical on you or theological or philosophical, or any of those things. God said to Adam, In the day thou eatest thereof the forbidden fruit, thou shalt surely die. And though through the atonement of Christ he was spared to people the world, neither he nor any of his posterity lived to be a thousand years old. They all died within the symbolized day. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So remember, he's making the old statement here the connection between the thousand years being as a day with the biblical story of creation how 
The world was created in seven days to total, well, created in six, and on the seventh day the Lord rested. And he's comparing these to these thousand-year cycles, and he's absolutely correct here. The oldest living person recorded in the Bible was Methuselah at 969 years of age. He allegedly died. So nobody lived longer than this thousand years, which would equal a day in the timing of this. So keep that in mind as we progress through the reading here. So he's making these connections between the day and a thousand years. And like I said, is this correct? I don't know. I can't claim to know. I have heard various things through various theological sources before. How they equate this and how it relates to the age of the earth and the age that we're in, as well as the times we're going through and how they equate the times we're living into the end times because of this type of philosophy. But I can't attest to the accuracy of such a thing. I would say if you live in right relation with God, you don't have to worry so much about any of that. That's the important thing to be said here, the important distinction to make. But let's continue on. If Adam had never sinned, and at the end of the world and the final judgment had been approved by God, and admitted into heaven, would his body have been like as his resurrected body will be? Of this we are not informed. The Bible was written for man in his fallen, not his unfallen state. Gonna pause for a moment there, folks. And this is wherein we must make the distinction. The Bible was written for man in his fallen state. You see, because in our unfallen state we would have better understanding of cause and effect relationships in this world. We would have better understanding of you know, various aspects of the creation here. We would have better understanding of spiritual concepts. But in our fallen state, we don't. And the Bible was written for man in his fallen state, not his unfallen state. So keep that in mind. And that is why a lot of times people get confused by what the Bible says why it seems contradictory in some points, when it's truly not when you explore out the scriptures in context. You can have a better understanding of things, but it relates back to physical things that we know and experience in this world and tries to describe spiritual things in terms of physical things that we know in this world. So a lot of it is allegorical by necessity, you see. And that's not to say that there aren't things in the Bible that are literal. I think that most certainly there are evidences in the Bible that speak to literal things. But you need to broaden your scope of understanding, broaden your mind to understand their spiritual connotations and levels and layers of meaning attached to various verses and scriptures throughout the Bible. All these layers of meaning are explored by theological students across the board. They recognize them. They recognize these things, and many philosophers recognize this as well, and especially a lot of these secret fraternities and secret brotherhoods, secret society groups, they understand that sometimes there's esoteric meanings encoded within the scripture, that there's layers of meaning to be pulled out, but they separate them from 
what the on your face meaning is when you shouldn't do that. You have to take all of it and not just a portion thereof. And that's the mistake we make being human beings. We will only impart one meaning to a certain thing and act as if that's the only thing that it really means when there's so much more. It goes much deeper. But anyway, keep that in mind. So the Bible was written for man in his fallen state. It's an important side note to keep in mind as we progress here. Let's continue. The Bible was written for man in his fallen, not his unfallen state. There is but one case in the divine record that indicates that a change would have occurred in this event before entering heaven. Adam had a wife and was commanded to multiply and replenish the earth. The generative powers in both man and beast evidently were given to populate this world, not the next. And when their mission is fulfilled, they must cease to exist. Enoch and Elijah were translated, equivalent to death and a resurrection. But as they were of our fallen race, the change that occurred in them can give us no light as to what would occur with an unfallen race. Our race is doomed to die, but how or by what means is not defined. The earth was cursed for man's sake, and from it a malaria rises with the seeds of death and floats in the air we breathe and produces disease and death in various forms and is incorporated in what we eat and drink. Death may come from the violence of man or beast, which could not have occurred if man had not sinned. It may come from casualties, or the hand of justice, for he that sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. The magistrate is God's minister in such a case, but if none of these occur, we must die of age. Die we must, unless such as are alive at the end of time, who shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Death is said to be the king of terrors and the terror of kings. But through the atonement of Christ, the Christian triumphs over it. Sin was the cause of its advent to man, and is its sting. When sin is pardoned, the sting is taken away. Thanks be to God, who giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that was written by Reverend Alfred Brunson, is who is attributed with that writing. But we're going to continue on reading the next portion here to understand a little bit more the distinction between this relationship between sin and death. So essentially, what this guy was trying to convey is that uh, we have defeated this idea here of death. It was defeated for us by Jesus Christ. Brought about by Adam, death was brought into mankind, into this world. Of course, speaking of death beyond just the physical cycles that happen here, these natural things that occur in the natural world. But let's continue on. So death, the wages of sin. Adam and Eve saw death strike down Abel, their best beloved son, a little later, and they saw it approach to strike themselves. So it is with all men. Death reigns as a sovereign over them. Sin has placed in his hands a scepter of iron, to which everything that breathes is subject. Ah, who will not then hate sin, which is the cause of so great misery? 
We weep over the ravages of death, over the ruin it has accomplished. Let us weep still more over that which introduced it into the world and gave it its power. Let us hate sin with all the horror it should inspire us with. going to pause for a moment here, folks. So think about that. People detest the idea of death. They don't like the idea of death. But they don't somehow have an opinion about sin. They don't dislike sin. Sin being the thing that gives death its sting. And we'll explore this a little bit further as we read on. So let's continue. Oh, let us be persuaded that sin is death. The death of the soul and the source of death to the body. The death of individuals and the death of societies. If it rains in a community, a city, a state, all there is is confusion. All is destruction. Soon nothing will be left but ruins. Is not this the teaching of history in all times and among all nations? Is it not a fact of universal experience? I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So we see here sin. You assume that sin is death, that they're one and the same thing. Sin being death of the soul which is the source of the death of the body, the death of individuals, the death of societies. And it says if a community, a city, a state, a nation, if all there is is confusion and destruction and sin abounds, this leads to nothing but death and destruction and ruin for that society. So keep that in mind. So we're not just talking about individual death. We're talking about death of cultures. And when cultures fall deeper into sinful ways, they bring about their more expedient death. And it has to do with the soul and the spirit as well. That's where it begins. See, death of the soul is what causes death of the body. So that is why sin is the precursor state of death why it has this relationship to death, why it brings about death, because sin is a sort of death of the soul, as it were. If you separate yourself from the natural laws and from the Creator and go against that, this causes sin, this causes some discord within your soul, which brings about a physical manifestation in the physical body. So this is what's being said here, and it brings about destruction of societies, of individuals, sin being the source of death in that regard. Let's continue. It says, Yes, we shall all die, all of us who are the children of a guilty father, and the day is perhaps not far distant when it shall be said of us, as of so many others, he is dead, he has closed the career which he was destined to run here below, he has entered upon his inter eternity, he is dead. Yes, we shall die because we have all sinned in Adam and in ourselves. We shall die because we all have within us sin, which is the cause of death. And to each of us, as to our first parents, was it said, Dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. We shall die because the poison of sin which is within us is a deadly poison, which must necessarily produce its fatal consequences. We shall die because we are sinners, 
and because, as St. Paul teaches, the wages of sin is death. So we're going to see here, we're moving on to the next portion here, where it says death, the companion of sin. And we'll see how these two things relate. And I know this isn't necessarily a comfortable topic for a lot of people out there, but I think it's necessary to actually talk about it and think about it. Because so much of the source of our misery comes from sin, and sin is the absolute cause of death. And they are interrelated. So next we see death, the companion of sin. The ancients called death the brother of sleep, and as such they often depicted it. This was, however, but an attempt to veil its terrors under a poetic figure, for the mind is not really delivered from them by any such means. Schelling, in his beautiful dialogue Clara, represents death as the liberation of a higher germ of life which lies hidden in man. It is true that we have an immortal guest in the perishing tabernacle of the body, but the breaking up of this tabernacle is the most violent and painful act of life, and everyone feels that this way of deliverance is an unnatural one. Our nature were, would our nature would not so struggle against it in the agonies of death if it were in agreement therewith. Death is a rupture running through our whole being and dissolving the harmony of our life. And does not the whole realm of nature, which is external to us, exhibit the same image of a destroyed harmony? Our feelings involuntarily associate this sway of death with sin. The testimony of conscience bids us seek the reason of this discord of life in the discord existing in the moral world. It is God's justice that has made death the companion of sin. It is the moral laws of nature that have connected the one with the other. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. The moral laws of nature have connected one with the other. So this is part of natural law. The consequence of sin is death. They're linked together. It's a natural law. It's an inescapable truth in this place. Inescapable truth. So we need to come to terms with that. And all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. So, therefore, we're touched by this. It's part of the natural law that runs this place. It's unavoidable, you see. Unavoidable. Let's read on. The reason why the discords of creation around us touch us so powerfully is that we feel them to be images of our moral condition. And it is the consciousness of this connection which gives to suffering its full poignancy. But we in the church know that the first and principal cause of human woe is this, that on account of sin, man is made subject to death and other calamity. So keep that in mind. It's because of sin that we're subject to death. We weren't originally created to have to experience that, folks. That's the whole point here. But through the gift of free will, we willingly chose to accept that lot because we wanted to understand what it is to live in this physical realm. We wanted to understand the nature of good and evil. And in so doing, we subjected ourselves to evil. 
Because in order to understand evil, you need to experience it, you see. And it's the same thing. You could equate the idea of death with evil and sin with evil. All these ideas connect together. So in order to have that knowledge of it, we had to experience it. And we chose to experience it out of our own curiosity, out of our own wanting to be more like God, to have better understanding of things. And so this is the path that was taken. But uh, let's continue on. Still a bit more to cover here. The sting of death is sin. The meaning of these words is that to a man conscious of unpardoned and unpurged sin, death is armed with a peculiar pungency of dread and horror. They refer not so much to that natural dread of suffering and death, which all may occasionally feel, as to that which is produced by a sense of guilt and a painful apprehension of punishment. This is an important distinction. Could we suppose a perfectly innocent being liable to death as we are, and without any apprehensions as to the future, yet to be liable to sudden interruption in his plans, to a separation from beloved friends and relations, to the pangs of disease, and the pains of dissolution, must necessarily invest death with characters repulsive, ghastly, and fearful. Here, however, would be no sting, no inward biting of remorse, no rankling anticipations of evil beyond, no sense of the frown of God. These constitute what the Apostle calls death's sting. It is felt more or less by every sinful man, and it is felt most by him who is the most aware of the sad truth and reality of his condition. If men succeed in blunting its point, that is but through a delusion which makes their case the more hopeless, and it is but temporary, there is a sharp and envenomed sting in death to every man who, having judgment and conscience, is yet surprised by it without preparation, for sin is the sting of death. When our souls shall leave this dwelling, the glory of one fair and virtuous action is above all the scutcheons on our tomb, or silken banners over us. So I'm going to pause for a moment there. So we see the idea of sin being the sting of death. That it's those who have this sort of guilt. They understand they've done wrong. They have this sense that they've done wrong and they must be held accountable to their creator for this. They're the ones that have this dread and overwhelming fear of death. And this is the sting of death. If you have a right relationship with God, with your Creator, you don't have this type of fear. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't have necessarily a natural fear of death or suffering. Most people do. I mean, we all go through that at some point. Where we have questions, we fear the unknown. We fear, we fear pain. We fear the idea of dying. But it's not the same as the sting of death if you know that you're guilty and that there's some accountability for your actions. If you have a guilty conscience, this weighs heavily on your spirit and leads to the death and the dying of the soul, which is the more important commodity here when it comes down to it, but which ultimately leads to physical death 
But you see, although we must all die, it doesn't necessarily have to have that sting. Where we have this guilt that we hang on to, these ill feelings that we hang on to, these discomforts of the idea, this unknowing of what's to come afterwards. And we really don't know what happens beyond death, aside from stories we've been told. We don't really know what's beyond. But if you have this sense of dread and guilt that you've done something wrong, that you feel wherein you've done bad things and you know in your heart and soul that you're going to be held accountable for that, that is the sting which is spoken of of death here. So there's a solution for that. And this next section here, this next section might be a little bit uncomfortable for some people, but this is called untimely death may be the result of special sin. Untimely death may be the result of special sin. We can all understand how this can be the case when even a good man, moved by a zeal which is not tempted with discretion, forgets the laws of health and works in such a way as to bring upon himself premature disease of brain or heart, by which he is prostrated long before he reaches the limit of threescore years and ten. going to pause for a moment here, folks. Threescore years and ten, that would be the age of seventy. This is especially the temptation of the times in which we live. Amidst the hurry and rush of our modern business with our railroads and telegraphs and steam navigation, we are all too apt to be borne along with the current, and ever and anon we are startled by the hopeless breakdown of some able and energetic leader in the very mid-time of his days. While in the church, as in the world, men of influence and energy burn themselves out by the intensity of their devotion to their work. Now and then, indeed, a word of warning will be uttered by loving friends and earnest fellow laborers, but it is silenced by the assertion that it is better to wear out than rust out. And the issue, as might have been foreseen, is a sudden collapse or a premature grave. Such self-consuming toil is not only unnecessary, but it is positively sinful. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. This next portion here is a hugely important idea. And keep this in mind. Don't be a workaholic, okay? It doesn't get you anywhere. It doesn't get you anywhere. I'm going to read that last sentence again and continue on with what it says. Such self-consuming toil is not only unnecessary, but it is positively sinful. We have no right to kill ourselves and call it zeal, and perhaps if we were to get at the root of the evil in such a case, we should find it not in public spirit, but in personal ambition. Such a prodigality of vitality is not sacrifice, but suicide. And it ought to be distinctly understood that overwork is wickedness, the guilt of which will keep us forever on the eastern side of our Jordan. So I'm going to pause for a moment again, folks. Do you get the idea? Do not be married to a job. They will replace you tomorrow if something were to happen to you. Do not fall into that trap of this material world that we live in. Do not work yourself to death. And, don't t and not take the time to actually enjoy 
your life. So many fall into that trap and make that mistake. I'm no different. I've been there. It's just... I've come to a realization in my life that toiling away my hours, my precious few hours that I have in this world, doing some menial task over and over again repetitively that is in, for an ungrateful boss, serving them and making them richer so that they can enjoy their lives, and in the meantime, I'm toiling away my time. Well, this is a sort of wickedness of sorts, isn't it? Just spinning your wheels, going nowhere fast. All in the name of just trying to make a living, as it were. But never actually living a life outside of that making a living, as they like to call it. So this is a caution here, given by this author that I totally agree with. Don't overwork yourself. Don't give absolutely 110% to a job that will not appreciate you. And at the end of the day, will not help you if something bad were to happen to you. Like I said, they'll replace you tomorrow. You're not indispensable there. You are replaceable there. But you know where you're not replaceable? At home with your family. There's no one that can fill your spot there. So it's important that we spend time with those we love. More so than toiling away at something of no real importance that brings us material comfort. Brief material comfort when we're in between toiling away our hours at it. Enjoy your life, folks. Live your life. Don't let your life revolve around a job or working for somebody else, enriching them while they're out enjoying their life upon the back of your labor. That's an important idea here. Don't call it zeal or ambition. A lot of people think they can get ahead doing this. And you know what? Maybe some people do get ahead doing that, but... Uh, what does that get them? Gets them stress, anxiety, and oftentimes an early death, as revealed here. So you have to ask what's truly important and understand. Overwork is a type of sinful act in and of itself. Giving too much effort to something that's not going to benefit you in a spiritual way at all. Things to think about. I like to give out these ideas to make you think. That's the important thing. We all need to be introspective. Look at ourselves. Be the change you want to see in this world. That's, that's an important notion as well. If we all attempt to be the change we want to see in this world, if we all do that, the world will look very different and be far better won't it? has to start somewhere. starts with each of you. starts inside all of us. But let's continue reading here, and we're going to wrap it up real soon. So it is possible that for personal sin, 
not in the physical but in the moral sphere, a man may die before his time. We recognize the truth of this assertion in the cause of the ungodly, but it holds also in those who must be described as servants of the Lord. And if we could see below the surface, we might discover that those deaths which were so often described by us as mysterious dispensations of providence have no more of mystery about them than the death of Moses, but have occurred when they did because of some sin with which the individuals were chargeable. This is a somewhat awful thought, and the mere enunciation of it is all that is required to point the warning which it suggests. David was not permitted to build the temple because he had been a man of war from his youth, and the disappointments, which have clouded many deathbeds, may have been similarly connected with the characters of the antecedent lives. In any case, it may be well for us to remember that our sins may shorten our lives and shut us out of the earthly Canaan, which we so much wish to possess. So we see there this idea that uh, because of the choices we make, sometimes we won't see the results in this earthly world, this physical world, that we want to see manifest during our lifetimes here. So we need to be mindful of where we focus our attention. Do we focus on physical things? Do we focus on material world stuff here, materiality? Do we focus on that or do we focus on things of spirit? And that's where we need to make the distinction in these types of decisions. So the next portion here is the disorganizing effect of sin in the body. It is important also, considering the moral reactions of the body, and especially the great fact of a propagation of the species, to notice the disorganizing effect of sin in the body. Body and soul, as long as they subsist in their organized state, are a strict unity. The abuses of one are abuses also of the other. The disturbances and diseases of one disturb and disease the other. The fortunes of the body must in this way follow the fortunes of the soul, whose organ it is. Sin has all its working, too, in the working of the brain. To think an evil thought, indulge a wicked purpose or passion, will, in this view, be much as if the sin had brought in a grain of sand and lodged it in the tissues of the brain. What then must be the effect when every path in its curious network of intelligence is traveled year by year by the insulting myriads of sinning thought hardened by the tramp of their feet and dusted by their smoky trail? But we are speaking theoretically. If we turn to practical evidences or matters of fact, we shall see plainly enough that what should follow in the effects of sin upon the body actually do follow. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So, we've talked many times before how thought precedes all. The idea of our thought preceding manifestation here in this place. It has a ring of truth to it. I think it is part of the natural law, natural order of this place. So when we have sinful thought, it manifests in a physical sense in certain ways. 
That's absolutely what's being said here. But let's go ahead and continue reading. How the vices of the appetites and passions terminate in diseases and a final disorganization of the body is well understood. The false conjunction made by intemperate drink, deluging the tissues of the body with its liquid poisons and reducing the body to a loathsome wreck, is not peculiar to that vice. The condition of sin is a condition of general intemperance. It takes away the power of self-government, loosens the passions, and makes even the natural appetite for food an instigator of excess. Indeed, how many of the sufferings and infirmities, even of persons called virtuous, are known by all intelligent physicians to be only the groaning of the body under loads habitually imposed by the untempered and really diseased veracity of their appetites. And if we could trace all the secret actions of causes, how faithfully would the fevers, the rheumatisms, the neuralgic and hypochondriacal torments, all the grim-looking woes of dyspepsia, be seen to follow the unregulated license of this kind of sin. Nor is anything better understood than that whichever vice of the mind, wounded pride, unregulated ambition, hatred, covetousness, covetousness, fear, inordinate care, throws the mind out of rest, throws the body out of rest also. Thus... It is that sin in all its forms becomes a power of bodily disturbance, shattering the nerves, inflaming the tissues, distempering the secretions, and brewing a general ferment of disease. In one view, the body is a kind of perpetual crystallization, and the crystal of true health cannot form itself under sin, because the body has, within a perpetual agitating cause, which forbids the process... If then, looking round upon the great field of humanity and nothing, or sorry, and noting the almost universal working of disease in so many forms and varieties that they cannot be named or counted, we sometimes exclaim with a sigh what a hospital the world is. We must be dull spectators if we stop at this and do not also connect the remembrance that sin is in the world. A gangrene of the mind, poisoning all the roots of health and making visible its woes by so many woes of bodily disease and death. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So I think there are some definitive truths being conveyed here. Sin leads to dis-ease because sin can be equated to many different things here stressors on the body, and this is validated scientifically, stress can cause dis-ease and bring about degeneration in the body and the mind. This is a known commodity, and this is all a symptom of sin. Like I said, we've all sinned. We're all sinners, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But you see... The nature of sin as it relates to death. It's a natural law, cause and effect sequence. It's because of sin that we die, that we have dis-ease. We have all of this manifestation here physically. And it starts in the spirit or the soul, the mind. The mind 
there's this underlying spiritual cause and effect relationship there. So when sin enters in, death follows behind. But let's continue reading. <clears throat> the particular question, whether bodily mortality has entered the world by sin, we will not discuss. This is principally a scripture question, and the word of scripture is not to be assumed in my argument. There obviously might have been a mode of translation to the second life that should have none of the painful and revolting incidents which constitute the essential reality of death. We do, moreover, know that a very considerable share of the diseases and deaths of our race are the natural effects of sin or wrongdoing. There is a great reason also to suspect, so devastating is the power of moral evil, that the infections and deadly plagues of the world are somehow generated by this cause. They seem to have their spring in some new virus of death, and this new virus must be must have been somewhere and somehow distilled or generated. We cannot refer them to mineral causes or vegetable or animal, which are nearly invariable, and they seem, as they begin their spread at some given locality, to have a humanly personal origin. That the virus of a poisonous and deadly contagion has been generated by human vices, we know as a familiar fact of history, which makes it the more probable, that the other pestilential contagions have been generated in the deteriorated populations and sweltering vices of the East, whence our plagues are mostly derived, going to pause for a moment here, folks, from the East, are you beginning to make some connections relating to some of the events of the past three years here as well with this? These are things to consider. This stuff is worthy of consideration. Does it make it true? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. But you have to figure there is this rampant rise of sin in this world. We're seeing a lot of a lot of things beginning to manifest in this world that hadn't existed in previous generations. Perversions of the natural order that hadn't existed in previous generations here. And we're also seeing the onset of many, many of these ravaging diseases of mankind. Death and destruction following. So... Keep that in mind, but let's continue on. On this point, we assert nothing as a truth positively discovered. We only design by these references to suggest the possible, and to us probable, extent and power of that ferment brewed by the instigations of sin in the diseased populations of the world. What we suggest respecting the virus of the world's plagues may be true, or it may not. This, at least, is shown beyond all question, that sin is a wide-spreading, dreadful power of bodily distemper and disorganization, which is the point of principal consequence. going to pause for a moment. I don't necessarily disagree with that. Sin, it does spread. It does cause disorganization and dissension, destruction to the things and the people that it comes in contact with. But let's continue on, and we'll wrap it up here very soon. Misery of man resulting from the introduction of sin and death. 
Who shall describe the misery of fallen man? His days, though few, are full of evil. Trouble and sorrow press him forward to the tomb. All the world except Noah and his family are drowning in the deluge. A storm of fire and brimstone is fallen from heaven upon Sodom and Gomorrah. The earth is opening her mouth to swallow up alive Korah, Dathon, and Ib- Abiram. Wrath is coming upon the beloved city, even wrath unto the uttermost. The tender and delicate mother is devouring her darling infant. The sword of men is executing the vengeance of God. The earth is emptying its inhabitants into the bottomless pit. On every hand are confused noises and garments rolled in blood. Fire and sword fill the land with consternation and dismay. Amid the universal devastation, wild shrieks and despairing groans fill the air. God of mercy, is thy ear heavy that thou canst not hear, or thy arm shortened that thou canst not save? The heavens above are brass, and the earth beneath is iron. For Jehovah pours his indignation upon his adversaries, and he will not pity or spare. Verily, the misery of man is great upon him. Behold, the wretched fallen creature, the pestilence pursues him, the leprosy cleaves to him, consumption is wasting him, inflammation is devouring his vitals, burning fever has seized upon the very springs of life, the destroying angel has overtaken the sinner in his sins. The hand of God is upon him, the fires of wrath are kindling about him, drying up every well of comfort and scorching all his hopes to ashes. Conscience is chastening him with scorpions. See how he writhes. Hear how he shrieks for help. Mark what agony and terror are in his soul and on his brow. Death stares him in the face and shakes at him his iron spear. He trembles, he turns pale, as a culprit at the bar, as a convict on the scaffold. He is condemned already. Conscience has pronounced the sentence. Anguish has taken a hold upon him. Terrors gather in battle array about him. He looks back, and the storms of Sinai pursue him. Forward, and hell is moved to meet him. Above, and the heavens are, are on fire. Beneath, and the world is burning. He listens, and the judgment trump is calling again. And the brazen chariots of vengeance are thundering from afar. Yet again, the sentence penetrates his soul with anguish unspeakable. Depart, ye accursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Thus, by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. They are dead in trespasses and sins, spiritually dead and legally dead, dead by the mortal power of sin, and dead by the condemnatory sentence of the law. And helpless as sheep to their slaughter, they are driven fiercely on by the ministers of wrath to the all-devouring grave in the lake of fire. Suppose a, gra- a vast graveyard surrounded by a lofty wall with only one entrance, which is by a massive iron gate that is fast bolted. Within are thousands and millions of human beings of all ages and classes, by one epidemic disease bending to the grave. The grave yawns to swallow them, and they must all perish. There is no balm to relieve, no physician there. Such is the condition of man as a sinner. All have sinned. And it is written, The soul that sinneth shall die. The miserable end of wicked men.
That's what this is speaking of. You see. So it's talking about the sinner. And it's talking about the possibility of repentance here. So you see that this whole notion of death being attached to sin is wherein much is written in theological works. The idea that sin is the reason for death and that the sinner, the sinner that has not been redeemed, suffers this fate and this is what is called the sting of death. And he knows this. This is the idea. It's the torment brought about by the idea of sin. And understanding that you are held responsible and liable to a higher power. I think all men inherently know this. They know. They feel that. Some try to use delusions to hide this. They delude themselves into believing that this physical world is all that there is. There's nothing spiritual beyond. There's no truth bound in some of these old religious concepts or philosophical concepts. That there's no such thing as sin. But see, denying sin is a denial of natural law. You can't deny natural law. It works how it works, and that's the end of the story with it. And we know this by observing the natural world. It works how it works. End of story. We don't necessarily understand exactly how it works, but we do understand what it does and how it does it, and it does it time and again, proven over and over and over. And to deny natural law would just be nonsensical because it functions whether you want to acknowledge it or not it works the same way the sun's going to come up tomorrow see this has functioned the same way day in and day out for as long as mankind has been around the sun will come up tomorrow of that you can be sure springtime will come summertime will come autumn will come winter will come these cycles of time they will manifest when they're supposed to right on time like always and we will see these things manifest we'll see them time and again these repeating cycles of the natural world this is natural law we understand this you can't deny that these things exist and they happen how they happen to deny sin is to do the same thing to deny a portion of natural law, you see. To deny sin and to deny natural law, well, the effect of that causation is death. And that's just how it's existent in this world. It's the natural ramification of the action or of the process. And we all were born into this sinful nature because of the original sin, as allegorized in the Bible here, the eating of the fruit of the knowledge of, or of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. To know evil is to experience evil. And what is more evil than sin and death?
So, we made this choice. Our ancestors made this choice. And this is where we live. But we do have a solution to death. It doesn't have to be a spiritual death. Because we exist in this physical world, we were given the knowledge of good and evil. It's a necessity to live in this physical material realm. To fully exist within it. We must know and face this notion of death or evil or sin. That's how we can know is only by experiencing it. And here we are. And this place is a school for us to learn. And we made the conscious choice to do that. To come here and learn and experience it. That's what happened here. I know sometimes it's something that's largely misunderstood. And we all have questions, and I don't claim to know all the answers. But when you understand how these different ideas are associated one with the other, how they have this relationship, this cause and effect relationship, and you understand that in order to have the knowledge thereof, well, you need to experience it firsthand. It's not something you could know without having experienced it firsthand. And that's where we're at. We wouldn't know what it is to be alive or to have life if we didn't know what death is. And this is wherein we have some of these various distinctions, these philosophical ideas that come about. This notion of duality, which I think is incorrect. I think it's more better. It's better described as polarity, perhaps. That we have to have a knowledge of the polar opposites of things in order to fully experience that which exists in between, which is life. So to know life especially in this physical material world, it was necessary to have this knowledge of good and evil, what it is. And we made that free will choice, or we could have existed in paradise without it. And the good news is we have this reunification, this possibility of reunification. Through the work of Jesus Christ, we have this redemption. We can get back to that condition wherein death has no effect anymore, does not exist anymore. Because in Adam all men were fallen. But that's not the original design God had in mind. He didn't intend for man to exist in this state, you see. Now this world he made to function how it functions, but man operates separately from the natural order of this world in many instances. We have that free will principle, so we can choose to work with the natural realm here or against it. And largely man works against it, and this is what is the nature of sin that separates us from these spiritual things here. We chose the path we chose. 
So therefore, we have this relationship now that we can understand a little better. Sin and death came into the world here together. Death was not ever intended to be part of mankind's existence in God's original plan here. But he knew he had to give us free will so that we may experience these things, so that we can have this knowledge of good and evil and make a choice where we want to stand. And knowing that we would make this choice with free will, that we would choose to try to understand the knowledge of good and evil, he made a way for us of redemption because he knew once we stepped into that that mode that death would soon enter. So he made a redemptive way for that for us. And we can have that reconciliation. And it's a simple, simple thing. And this is what really flusters the philosophers and the magicians and the secret brotherhoods. The simplicity of it. And it's all just a free gift because of the grace of God. All you have to do is accept it. It's the gift given to us. The redemption given by Jesus Christ. It's as easy as that. It's a free gift. You don't have to earn it. You just have to accept him as Savior and Lord. And acknowledge him for who he is. And you can have this free gift... And it's a stumbling block to those who who teach things like Gnosticism, salvation through knowledge and power, and working for it. It's not something you can work for. Man is incapable in his fallen state of establishing that reconnection with God. So he sent his son, God incarnate on the earth, to do it for us and make the way for us and offered it as a free gift out of his own grace and goodwill and love towards mankind. And all you have to do is accept that. And it's a stumbling block for the philosophers and the magicians and the occultists who seek this power over others, seek this worldly power, seek to try to build their own form of salvation, as it were. And it flusters them to no end because of its simplicity. Mankind tries to overcomplicate everything. It's the same thing here. In order to understand evil, we had to experience it, and therefore sin entered in with that knowledge. And with sin, the natural result, because of natural law, is death. So now but we have the means of reconciliation, and that's the good news. So keep that in mind as we go. But I always like to explore these topics, and hopefully it made you think. And like I said, I don't claim to have all the answers. I certainly don't. I'm just a guy muddling around, too, trying to understand this world in which we live. Trying to do better myself, trying to be the change I want to see in the world. And I like to make people think. So I hope, if nothing else, this conversation tonight makes you slow down and think a little about what's important, what's not important, and what truly matters. And I think this kind of a topic, it might not be everybody's first choice, it's necessary to talk about now and again.
So that being the case, I'm glad we explored this topic tonight, and I hope you found value in it. I want to thank you all for tuning in. I appreciate each and every one of you. I'll catch you next time. Have a good night now. Come with me. See